Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And uh, this is, uh, we're going to be looking at this in the month of August. It's four chapters, so you can tell it's going to be a brisk um, uh, look at this narrative. But I, I hope that it'll be an encouraging one. We're going to start in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, the wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I am going to have, am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And let's pray again. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I think my, most of you may know that uh, I came from Terminex before I started here at Grace of Ann Church. I was in the corporate office and uh, I wore a suit and tie and stuff, but they would send us out into the field and uh, give us, you know, squirt lessons. So I can actually work a squirter and uh, squirt baseboards just like the technicians can. And, uh, so I, and I also learned about bugs, and I, found, I still find inter insects to be, uh, while disgusting, interesting. And we had in entomologists on staff and stuff, and it was cool. You'd find a weird bug and bring it in, and they would get all excited. It was kind of cool. Well, uh, I also learned some just neat little fun things, and if you want to have some cheap uh, entertainment, uh, the next time you see some ants outside in a straight line, I mean, isn't that amazing? And they're walking in this dutiful little straight line. They kind of run into each other. Hey, how you doing? And they, they keep on going. Uh, if you want to have some fun, take some Windex and uh, spray it across their line. And watch them. You, you lay that Windex, or anything, you know, spit on the ground. And you break up their little, their little line, and all of a sudden they start going, oh, hey, 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 what, you know. And they're trying, to, they're trying to go around it, and they can't really figure it out. I mean, it just freaks them out. And the reason it does is there's stuff called pheromone. It's kind of like uh, they go to the little ant goldsmiths and buy this little bottle of uh, pheromone and they splash it on and uh, as they're, as they're uh, walking along, they emit this stuff behind them and uh, that's how the ants follow each other in a straight line. But if you break up the pheromone trail, all, all, you know, their whole world comes unglued. Well, I wonder if uh, many of us go through life like ants that don't have a path anymore. Um, I know that the lost do. Uh, if one would live without a relationship with the one true God, if one would live without a relationship with a God who is personal, who sent a personal Savior, then what sense can there possibly be made of this life? How can we understand not only, the, not only pain and hardship, but how do we make sense of just our whole existence? Here's a quote from Stephen Charnock, uh, a, a Puritan. Listen to this. Of, of the lost. All of his hopes must be confined to a swinish and despicable manner of life without any imaginings of so much as a bit of reserved happiness. The lost man is in worse condition than the silliest animal. He can have nothing here to give him a full content. He deposeth the noble end of his own being, which is to serve a God and have a satisfaction in him, to seek a God and be rewarded by him. And he that departs from his end recedes from his own nature. Do you get all that? I mean, I know it's kind of wordy, but that we were built as, as a worshiping creature. We were built to worship the one true God. Now, sin enters the picture and, and messes up the pheromone trail. But we were built for that. And when we recede from that, you know, not only can we not have relationship vertically with our God, but we don't have relationship with each other. We, can't, we don't even have peace within. Now you say, but yeah, okay, but I'm a Christian. And yet, you know what I say to be true. You know in your heart, believer, that there is no purpose. There is no, there is no satisfaction. There is no sense to be made in our daily lives when our relationship with the one true God is, is, is not intact. When, when we're not fixed fully on our God, our Savior, our Shepherd, and our Friend. You know, the world stops making sense. And I submit to you that to believe that God is the grand creator and sustainer that everything, everything that has been made, that, that to believe that He's the architect of everything that is seen and unseen, to believe that and yet not believe 
that God is in absolute control of every little microscopic thing is to adopt the same swinish attitude that, that in that quote that I read. It's, it's, to, it's to think like a brute beast and forget that God who made everything sustains everything. He just didn't create and, and just fling it out there. He, he, he reigns dynamically and he keeps his fingers in what he has made. Well, so what does that have to do with the story about three widows? Well, if you're old, uh, like me, you grew up watching Columbo. And uh, did anybody like Columbo? That's my favorite of all of those kind of detective shows. And really, one of the reasons I like it is not only do I like Peter Vonk and all that stuff, but I like the, the way it's set up. You know, we watch the guy think about a crime and plan it and commit it. And then, you know, in about 18 minutes into the show, Columbo drives up in that weird car and uh, starts to sort it all out and, and figure this guy out and trap him. But, you know, the, the point is, though, you know, we're in on it. That's what I like about Columbo is we're in on the whole thing. And it's the same way with this book. It's the same way with the book of Ruth. You know, these, these poor participants are living day by day by day. All they see it is right before what's in front of them. All they see is right on the sides. All they have is their history. But we see the whole thing unfolding just like watching a Columbo episode. We have that great benefit. And um, one, of the, one of the sweetnesses, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, we, you know, we don't understand why God works the way He does. We don't understand His method. Well, guess what? In this, we get a glimpse as to the way God operates. All right, here's another interesting thing. Uh, where this book appears in the Bible. Um, you know, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. And uh, Moses dies and Joshua takes... Uh, uh, takes his place and uh, leads them into the land, and uh, they take control of it. Uh, Israel rebels, and then we enter into the Jimmy Young series on Sunday morning, Judges, the period of the Judges, the time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in between that, in fact, uh, if you're in Ruth, flip back one page. Look at the last verse. Uh, this is just an aside. You know there's a myth that, uh, oh, God meant for us to be, we're supposed to have a president or a prime minister. It's supposed to be judges. Oh, really? Well, look at the last verse of uh, Judges chapter 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. You know, that's a commentary on the whole book of Judges. It's messed up. It's a downward spiral. Things get worse and worse and worse. Everyone did as he saw fit. All right? In between that period in this book and, and the period of the kings comes this wonderful story about Ruth, which is noteworthy, um, although it's not necessarily chronological. In the earliest Hebrew records, uh, Ruth appears just before the Psalms. And in the Hebrew Bible today, you know where Ruth appears? Uh, right after Proverbs. I find that to be interesting, that it shows up after Proverbs because uh, what's the last uh, chapter of Proverbs look like? What's it about? The virtuous wife. A woman of noble character. And that, that gives me goosebumps. And after that chapter, after that splendid chapter, plops down this book, Ruth. Okay? But in our Bible, it finds its place because it takes place, as we see in verse 1, in the period of the judges. It says in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay? So it takes place in the period of the judges and uh, introduces the kingly line of David, as we will see at the very end of the, the book. 
Now, a couple more things housekeeping-wise and we'll move on. Some people read this story as uh, a kind of mild form of entertainment. They think it's sweet. Uh, if you've ever watched the Ten Commandments, you know that they yank one of these verses out and they, they, they give it to a, a male-female romance. Where you go, I will go. Uh, and, you know, it come, it's you know, from a, a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law, of all things. And some people, they see this story uh, as, uh, as kind of a motivational thing. I don't know how many Bible studies you may have heard where, where somebody preaches something about uh, how friends stick together. Let's turn to the book of Ruth and see how friends stick together. Well, now listen, that's, that's fine, and it's true, and it's good to see faithfulness and all that stuff. But, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot look at that and miss the real point. It's not just some sweet little cute motivational story. Who is the hero of the story? Is it Ruth? No. Is it Naomi, who's mentioned uh, quite a bit? No. Who's the hero of the story? God is the hero of the story. It's not some cute story about how friends stick together. God is the central character in the story. There is a special focus on Him. In fact, out of 85 verses, 23 of them mention God, and only two from the mouth of the narrator. Um, verse 6 of chapter 1. When uh, she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people. You see that that's the narrator talking. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and, and she became his wife. Then he went out to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Alright, that's the narrator talking. The rest of the references come from the mouth of the players. The mouth of the, the characters in the story mention the Lord. And so he, he, his, his, his presence is sprinkled throughout it. And one of the great benefits for us to see is that even though uh, the players might not understand why they're going through what they're going through, they, they might not like where they are, at least they have a consciousness about who is running things, about who is governing and reigning. And that's a good lesson for us. Um, you know, guys... Um, we tend to have a, uh, a spiritual uh, love affair with all the, the big bangs in life. Um, uh, you know, we sing, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. You know what an Ebenezer is? When we say, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Here, I'm, I'm raising mine. I'm building my Ebenezer. Okay, you know what we're singing about? We're, we're singing about when, uh, is it First Sam? Six, and, six, seven, and eight, where uh, uh, the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and uh, they stick it in the Temple of Dagon and Dagon falls over and they go, oh, poor Dagon. I was like, here, buddy. They stand him back up again they, and, and he falls over again and he, he busts up and, and, uh, and then finally they, they, God delivers him and uh, they're like, how can we give this Ark back to you and tell us the right way to do it? Because we're afraid of your God. All right? And so God delivers them and so they build this monument in a place called Ebenezer so they call it Ebenezer. All right, so that little Johnny uh, can look at it and go, Grandpa, why is that pile of rocks over here? And he could say, well, because God delivered. All right, that's a good thing to sing about. Here I raise mine, Ebenezer. I have instances in my life where God rescued, God sustained. There are these places in my life. But, you know, I was reading Tammy a, a poem last night. Uh, I didn't bring it, but I was reading a, a, her this little poem that I had in this book about, about um, how often does a bee buzz around our head without our even knowing it. You know, how often does a bee with a stinger come by and we don't even know how close we were to this stinger? 
How many times have we in our lives walked up to the razor's edge of the abyss of, of calamity and not even known we were right there teetering and God's hand comes in and, and writes us and sustains us? I mean, how many times have we been in that situation? You know, we think we're a blessed people. We are a blessed people, but you know what? We look at our lives and we say, well, that's a blessing. Count your blessings. Name the one. Okay. All right. Forty-seven blessings. That's a lot. There are trillions and trillions of blessings that we don't even know because God is reigning and so intervenes and so protects and keeps us. We don't even know it. And so the point, I think, is that, uh, that uh, when we don't have big bangs of God's deliverance, it's not that God's absent. It's that... Uh, that, that God's role is more often a very steady, quiet one. God's intervention in our life isn't just uh, when, when we're in our deepest pain and we're on our knees weeping and moaning. It's, it's quietly, steadily, faithfully God is inter, interwoven into our lives. Um, you know, uh, Tammy and I have been married 11 years. And uh, it amazes me because I'll tell people that and they'll say, wow, 11. Well, you know, I look at some of you uh, gray-headed folks and they're look, you're looking at me going, what a punk, you know? And I mean, I just, uh, I just, I can't remember who it was. I saw somebody in the men's room a few Sundays ago and he said, how long have you been married? And I said, 11 years. And he said, oh, just starting out. <laughs> and I'm telling you, that is just the... To me, that's just the sweetest, most encouraging thing. I mean, I look at a guy who's been married 58 years, and I'm thinking, man, I mean, I don't want to be that close to death, but uh, like he was. But, uh, but the thought of being married 58 years and looking back on those, and I'm telling you, just in 11 years, we've gone through health problems, and we've gone through emotional problems and money problems and all kinds of things, and, and here we still are, and our love has grown even deeper. And my point is, old love's better than new love. You know, new love is, whoo, you know, I mean, the Odie's, listen, they're, they're still having pillow fights. Whoo, ooh, I got you, you know, uh, and, and that's fun. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the joys of new love are great and, and they're wonderful. They're wonderful. But you know, old love is better because you get to look back on a lifetime of faithfulness and support and giving and working through and, you know, well, that's the way God works. I mean, yes, there are big bangs, but one of the joys of a long life of, of Christianity is looking back and knowing that God has been there intervening faithfully, never wavering in His love for us, Christ's work never, never moving in its sufficiency. Let's look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, that, that's somewhat poignant because Bethlehem uh, means a house of bread. And so there's a famine in the house of bread. I don't know if any of you went to Ukraine, but uh, Ukraine was the bread basket of the USSR. And so strange was it to go there and see, uh, you know, people working four jobs and beautiful architecture with plaster falling off of it. And you're thinking, this was the bread basket. How ironic. And it's ironic here, too, uh, that, there's a, that there's a famine in the house of bread. 
And it's interesting to note that, that the one place where God's uh, work is not mentioned is in these first five verses where you see a famine in the land. How great was the famine? Well, how great was it for Naomi? She watches her husband die and watches him buries two children. Ah, that's a famine in the land, and that's a famine in this woman's life. Look at verse 3. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They marry these two Moabite women. Uh, the sons die, and there she is, uh, very specifically put at the end of verse 5, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is no slight to you ladies at all, but it was different back then. Uh, there was no cell phone. I got a flat tire. You know? Not safe like it is now. There's no internet. You know, you're not keeping in touch with your family. You pack up the wagon and it's goodbye. We probably might never see each other for the rest of our lives. Uh, you don't have uh, mace. Um, you don't have locks on your door like we have. And uh, I mean, it's it was a dangerous place for women to be alone, especially in this strange land, a dangerous world. And especially looking at their ages. Um, you know, look at verse 8. Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. You know, Moab's where you need to be. You know why? Uh, so you can hook up with some Moabite men. Because Naomi knew the Israelite men aren't going to have you. They're, they don't want you. You're, not only are, have, you, have you been married, but you're, you're a... You know, you're a Moabitess. Naomi knew. And so the prognosis is not good. Look at verse 11. Naomi says, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come to me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would be, uh, become your husbands? And so she elaborates on that point. Well, one more thing. Look at verse 14. This is kind of a hinge uh, uh, in this story. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, clung to her. Does that look like a little bit of a sign of hope? Uh, you know, Naomi's got it right um, uh, when, when she, she says uh, that her life has been made bitter and that, uh, that God's uh, hand has gone out against them, against her. But then you see in the very next verse, but Ruth clung to her. And you see, you know, the bee buzzing and God provides this little this little thing in the story that keeps us hinged and shows us, ah, we see how desperate it looks, but God's working. God's working. Well, all right. The title of the book is Ruth. But so far, friends, who are we most interested in? Of, of the names of these people, who are we most interested in? Naomi. She's all over the place. I mean, you look at the beginning of chapter 1, it, Naomi. You look at the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi. You look at the uh, beginning of uh, chapter 2, uh, now Naomi. Uh, look at the end of chapter 2, Naomi. Uh, chapter 3, Naomi. End of chapter 3, Naomi. Uh, and, and, and gloriously, at the very end of the book, who is it about? Naomi. And so even though Ruth clung to her, um, the, the whole thing, I think, is centered around Naomi because there's a very wonderful point for us, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, Naomi's taken a lot of knocks over the years about how she should have um, trusted God. You ever, you ever been just in, really in a, in a terribly complicated situation, very painful, um, and somebody walks up and says, Oh, just trust God. You know? You've had a death in the family and somebody walks up and says, 
oh, I can't die. You want to say, that's the cruelest thing anybody's ever said to me. You know? And we look at Naomi and we say, oh, Naomi. You know, Ruth, clinging to you. I mean, wake up. And what's this whole, uh, you know, you ought to be rebuked, Naomi. Look at verse 21. Don't call, look, look, well, look at verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. You know why? What does Naomi mean? Pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Better. And she's got a reason. Because the Almighty has my, made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, is she wrong? Is her life bitter? Did she go away full and come back empty? She certainly didn't come back with her husband or two sons. I think she's speaking accurately. You know, maybe, maybe she is missing God's intervention in some of this. Although she says, uh, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. You know, at least though, ladies and gentlemen, at least she can say, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. I know He sits on a throne. I know He sees what's happening. My life is bitter. And I know ultimately that these decisions have passed through His sovereign hand. That's a hard truth. But it's a truth. And at least Naomi has that point right. Verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, she takes her daughter-in-laws and tries to make her way out. You know, at least she hears. She doesn't hear, oh, there's food. She hears, oh, the Lord has come to the aid of His people by providing food for them. At least we see that she is thinking rightly about God's intervention. And she says that her life has been made, made, made bitter. And I think she's right. It's been made bitter. Uh, I, I, I spoke to someone. <laughs> you know, I, I talked to a lot of people that, that say things like this. And um, they'll say, I can't believe God is doing this to me. I can't believe. I'm trying I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to move ahead. I'm trying this. I thought I was making some headway, and I can't believe this is happening to me. And, uh, you know, there was a time in my life when I'd say, well, you know, we'll, you know trust God. But I don't do that anymore. You know what I do? I hold their hand. Because, because it's a hard world out there. And one of the hard truths is that God reigns on His throne, and there's not a point where He steps off and says, oops, I've got no control over this matter. He does have control over this matter. A hard pill. But we don't have to understand why God lets us go through things because His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I'll tell you something else. Um, God knows the thoughts that He thinks toward you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Who expects the end? He does. He knows the end. And it's an expected one. He knows the thoughts He thinks towards you. You might recognize it this way. For I know the plans I have for you. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope, give you hope and a future. That's our God. Paul understood this too when he said, All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Paul understood this. It's hard. It's a hard life out there. It's a fallen world. We're fallen people. But we must always understand that our God reigns. It might be bitter at a moment, but our God reigns. What Naomi didn't see, and what she really wasn't even looking for probably, was the possibility and the reality that God was working things together for her good. Look at um, our passage one more time, verse 16. Ruth, Naomi says, go on back. Orpah says, okay. Kisses her, I love you, goodbye. Ruth clings to her. Uh, Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. That's quite a statement, isn't it? But it gets better. And where you stay, I will stay. That's pretty weighty. That's a pretty, uh, pretty good word of encouragement. Your people will be my people. Well, well, that's pretty good. And your God, my God. Right? She's, she's won over to the one true God. But it gets real serious here. Is that more serious enough? Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. Naomi, you're older than me. And here's how attached I am to you. Here's how faithful I am to you. When you kick the bucket, I'm going to still live here. I'm going to go in the hole right next to you. You see God's fingerprints kind of weaving through this story? You know, fingerprints of faithfulness. I think, I think too many of us, much of the time, go about our busy work oblivious to the fact that God rules and sustains and reigns Mostly quietly. Mostly quietly. You remember uh, Mission Impossible, the first one? Anybody see? Who did see Mission Impossible? All right. Oh, that's pretty good. Oh, you did? Hey. You like that Tom Cruise. Um, well, you know, there's that, uh, there's that scene where they've got cameras in their glasses, you know? And they walk in this room, and they're kind of, each guy's kind of going, hmm. And uh, he's like, okay, there's a lady over there. And uh, they're kind of walking around. And the, all, all this person can see is this. But John Voight is in the control room. And he's got all these screens. And he's seeing what everybody's seeing all at the same time. That ain't a bad thing to think about. You know, we go through life. And, and just like these poor players in the story. You know, one event comes. And the next hard day comes, and the next night of weeping comes, and it's hard and it's bitter. And yet, somebody is looking at all of them. You know, you make a foolish decision here, one that could have been a little more wise. You forgot your car keys one day, you left about a half a minute later, and you came into a whole new series of traffic events. Who's, who's controlling it all? The one true God, who knows all and is above all controls all. A couple more things I'm going to quit. Um, let me read something to you. 
I have prayed for rescue and it will not come. I have made my efforts and they are terrible and weak. I have awakened only to find again that relief was a dream and life is a pouring rain. Could a Christian have written those words? I hope so. Because I wrote them once. And I read them to you because in my own personal experience. Will you read them again? Yes, sir. I have prayed for rescue and it will not come. I have made my efforts and they are terrible and weak. I have awakened only to find again that relief was a dream and life is a pouring rain. And I think a lot of you, well, I'll tell you what, I pan the room and I look at faces of people and um, I mean just in panning a room I ache with so many of you. And I know, I know that you have awakened day after day and you found that, that it was a pouring rain. But I tell you from my own experience that uh, it's easy to be caught up in, in a sense of, of life's bitterness and not see the deliverance come. And that's, happened, that's what happened to me. You know, I, I, I one day realized, oh, deliverance came and I wasn't even looking for it. And maybe that's a message in this story. It's hard. And circumstances can be very bitter. By our own doing and not. But let us take a, a lesson from this and search out God's kindnesses. Uh, might we walk out of here with a freshened perspective? Uh, seeing, searching for God's fingerprints streaming from behind the, the very black cloud remembering that our God is a king who reigns and rules and sustains mostly quietly and always faithfully Father, we read in your word a story that is full of legitimate tragedy and, and characters that go day by day experiencing real pain. And yet, Father, we have this, this sweet reader's edge and we can see in place after place after place your handiwork, your sustaining. We do not know how many times the bee has buzzed around our head and we have not felt the sting. We do not know how many, how many manifold blessings belong to us. We have a, a meager awareness. And our Father, our prayer is that we would indeed walk out with a freshened perspective, that we would remember that in all things you reign, that not a circumstance comes our way that is not that is not buffeted and tenderized by your loving hand. You know the thoughts you think toward us and you have an expected end. That end is good. It is an end of hope. And it is for our, our well-being. 
uh, apply that to our heart, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.